Hello, my name is Rob Edwards, and this is my first 2019 podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to a new year, a new podcast, new stories and excitements ahead. How is everybody jolly well doing? Uh, today, I have a, a new story for you, uh, but not one of mine. Uh, as I will explain in just a moment, I've been really busy this last month or two. Uh, so we have a story from my buddy, Leo McBride, Stephen Hunt, who you may remember uh, I interviewed on this podcast a few episodes ago. It's his story uh, from uh, Tales from Alternate Earths. It's called The Secret War, and it's really rather good. Uh, but I'll read that to you in a moment. First of all, as ever, a little bit of news about me and my doings. Uh, first of all, the reason why the podcast has kind of shifted towards the end of the month is that things have gotten a bit on top of me over the last couple of months. Uh, that training course I think I mentioned being on has converted into an internship, which is fantastic. Uh, it's not paid, sadly, but it does mean I get out there into the workplace again, get some valuable experience, uh, and try my hand at something a bit new, a bit different. Specifically, I'm going to be doing some content creation uh, for The Shortcut, uh, who bridge the gap between immigrants in Finland uh, and the Finnish uh, startup community. If you're interested, uh, I've already written a couple of blog posts uh, for them. Uh, you can check them out on Medium. I'll put a link to the first one uh, into the description of this podcast. Also, I've been working hard on Inklings Press activities. Uh, specifically, we have a new anthology uh, we are collecting submissions for, uh, and the deadline for that was the end of December, and I have been reading those submissions uh, for most of January. Uh, we had a massive response. It was really exciting. Uh, over 120 stories submitted to us, uh, and there are some really cracking stories amongst them, and I'm looking forward to people being able to read them much later in the year once we get things sorted. But it has meant that a lot of my time, a lot of my headspace, has been about reading other people's work. And as a result, I don't have anything new of mine for you uh, this week. Uh, so I'm going to be reading to you, as I say, uh, a story by uh, Leah McBride called The Secret War. And honestly, if I said anything more about it, it would be a spoiler. So let's get straight to it. The Secret War by Leo McBride. It seems almost unimaginable to me now how the events of the past few hours unfolded. Only this morning, when roused by the call from Huxley, I would scarce have imagined it myself. Looking back now, as I sit in the safety of a train carriage, taking me away from the scene of such horror. His calm, measured tone seemed so far away from the last words I heard from him, his cry of, Run for it, Bertie! I recall the fear in his voice, and then the pain in my shoulder, as the hand of the artilleryman, detailed to guard the civilian investigators, gripped me hard and pushed me towards Benz's automobile contraption. As I sat now in this carriage, it seemed harder still to believe. Around me, families filled the carriage, parents playing with children or set to reading or discussions, oblivious to the threat that came last night, threatening to wash away this world of ours. Run for it! Huxley had cried, and God help me, I did. It was a matter of wonder to me that, after all that had happened, the world around me continued with such normality. I felt alone, separated from the everyday routines around me. 
My skin still stung from the heat and flames, and the voices, the screams still haunted me. I closed my eyes and let the movement of the train lull me into what I knew would be a restless, fevered sleep. The sudden halt of the train jolted me awake. For a moment everything seemed to be an impossible fantasy, but as I became more aware of my surroundings I noticed the happy, eager chatter of conversation by the families had changed. Parents comforted children. Husbands whispered cautiously to wives, and all strained to look out the window to one side of the carriage. The clatter, clatter, clap, rap of the train's idle passage had ceased. Yet we stood in open fields, not the destination of the London station for which I had forsaken my journey home and my dear Jane. Straightening my clothes, I too rose and leaned as far as I could to see what may have halted the carriage. Ahead lay a railway crossing, and lined along it were members of a company of soldiers with rifles held ready and a maxim parked close by troops down from the barracks at aldershot if i wasn't mistaken i felt it was time to take my leave retrieved my hat from my seat and made my way to the end of the carriage disembarking on the far side of the train my papers tucked safely in my briefcase i stepped briskly along the beaten road alongside the track stifling a cough as I walked. I soon gained my bearings. Not far away was Stroud, where I could perhaps find a wagoner heading north. I chanced to glance behind me towards the train to see soldiers forcing people off into a field. Run, Huxley had said. He certainly hadn't intended for me to be stopped before I could tell people what I'd witnessed on the common. The walk had quite taken the breath from me as I reached the edge of Stroud, just as the sun was setting. The community was peaceful, quiet, and again I was struck by the stark differences from what I had witnessed earlier that day, and the quiet pace of the rest of the world, untouched as it was by the news of instant at the common. Little would I have suspected such occurrences when I woke this morning, I mused. I could hardly fault the rest of the world for the same. A long walk! I started the voice. In my reverie, I had fallen into introspection, not noticing the figure now standing in the garden beyond the wall where I rested. I looked up at the man. Are you the parson? I asked. He smiled and shook his head. The curate, he replied, before adding with a note of concern. Are you well? You look weary. Have you any water? I asked abruptly. He nodded. I'll get you a glass. One moment. A sound came echoing to my ears along the road, the sound of booted feet marching on the roadway. I paused for a moment, then beckoned to the curate. Forgive me, I said. Would you mind if I took a seat inside while I drank? The dust of the road. Again he nodded, and I rose, brushed off my hat, and followed him inside. "'Did you see the falling star last night?' he asked, as I sipped the water and watched the window facing the road. I looked towards him and shook my head no. "'I was in the garden,' he continued. "'Often on an evening I like to sit in the garden and look towards the sky. I find it helps me meditate on God's word. That's when I saw it, the falling star, passing through the evening sky with a hissing sound, leaving a green trail behind it.' It fell somewhere south of here. The sound of boots was close now, 
and we both paused and looked as the company of soldiers passed by, the Maxim gun in their wake. "'Where do you suppose they are going?' asked the curate. I shrugged. We sat in silence for a while until the soldiers had passed from sight and sound. I sipped the cool water to soothe the cough in my throat. "'What do you suppose it meant?' he asked. I looked up at him. "'What do you suppose what meant?' I asked. "'The falling star,' he said. Again I shrugged. "'You're the man of God,' I said. "'Aren't you the one to provide meaning?' He rose and paced the window. "'I wonder,' he said. "'Because in all the days I have lived here "'I have never seen a column of soldiers come by like that, "'let alone pulling a gun with them. "'And it occurs to me this happens the very day "'after I see a sign in the heavens. "'Did you come from the south?' Did you see anything there? I came off a train from Woking, I said. Soldiers were stopping the trains. I decided to try and find another way. I'm just a traveller, no more than that. You don't think the falling star meant anything? He pressed. Again I showed disinterest, suppressing a cough and sipping my water. And the third angel sounded, he said. And a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers, and on the springs of waters, and the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters, because they were made bitter. He paused. You know the passage? You are a Christian, sir. I inclined my head. Revelation, I replied. As to the latter... I fear if I called myself a Christian, I might imply too much, and thus tell a lie. He sniffed. Are you a Sunday believer, sir? One of those men who prays on a schedule, then conveniently forgets until the calendar reminds him once more. I sipped my drink. Not at all. Though I think my belief is in more of a personal and intimate God than many might appreciate. But what does God have to do with a falling star? He sat again opposite me and levelled his gaze. If the star brings destruction, he said softly. Everything, sir. Everything. We sat in silence for some time until finally the curate spoke again. You're headed north, toward London, he said. I nodded. It's getting late. Perhaps you should rest here. On the main street is a bar. I might not approve of what it does, but the landlord is a good enough man. He has a horse and cart. I could speak to him. You could get a ride with him tomorrow, I'm sure. I thought of the soldiers back on the road and concurred. And so we spent the evening talking, him trying to convince me of the error of my ways and the signs in the sky that foretold the end of times, while I kept my counsel as best I could, and refused to tell him of the horrors I had seen, lest they feed the fire to go with his brimstone. For all his strange talk, the curate was good to his word, and the next morning I rested in the back of a cart as the landlord's assistant carried me north. He carried me as far as Staines, where we parted, and I was able to send a telegram to Pearson at my destination before boarding an omnibus that clattered its way steadily towards the centre of London. It was evening again by the time the omnibus reached Fulham, 
Passengers came and went through the day, but I kept myself through the journey, scribbling notes on all I had seen to present to Pearson when I saw him. Twice more during the day we passed soldiers, each group headed south. The first was a column of hussars, the second a team pulling artillery. Each time I kept my face from the window, tucking my hat lower over my face. At Fulham I engaged a hansom to carry me farther into London itself. The streets were packed with people going about their early evening business. Workers headed home or started to spill out towards bars for the evening carousal. Theatre-goers passed in other cabs bound for the West End. News-hawkers shouted the headlines as they held up their copies of the Times or the Telegraph. I bid the cab-driver stop while I obtained a copy of the evening's papers and scoured the pages for any details about the incident on the common. I was able to find only two items a page five story detailing an army exercise taking place there that might prove a disruption to local travel, and then on page fourteen an item that made me pause, sigh, and wipe a tear from my eye. There, in black and white, in the paper of record, was an obituary for Huxley, my old teacher, whose voice I could still hear ringing in my ears. I pored over every word, though much of it I knew by heart already. My old biology teacher, Darwin's bulldog, survived by his wife, Henrietta, two sons and four daughters. Then came the lie. He died in Eastbourne, the article said, of a heart attack after suffering influenza. I recall those days at the normal school of science where he would smile and caution me, try to learn something about everything and everything about something. And yet, it was his last words I kept hearing. Run for it, Bertie! An old man, seventy years of age by his obituary, yet he had wrestled with those officers long enough to give me a head start, along with the artilleryman. That nameless artilleryman he had arranged as a dog's body to let me get to the bends and thence to the train. I feared I would never know someone quite so brave again. It was well settled into evening by the time the hansom glided me through the streets to my destination in the East End. All around the offices of the area were closed, and the hansom skittered away from the bright lights of the pubs on the street corners to the building I was bound for. Are you sure this is the place, Gov? asked the driver as I put money in his hand. I nodded and indicated with a tilt of my brow the upstairs window, in which a light still burned. He took that as enough, tucking the money into his inside pocket, and the hansom slid away. I walked to the door, and the sign overhead, reading Pearson's Digest, and tried the door. It was unlocked, for which I was thankful, and I quickly stepped inside off the street. In the dim light afforded by the moon, I could see the stairs ascending in front of me, and carefully made my way up. The light of Pearson's office framed the doorway at the top. I doffed my hat and tapped twice. "'Arthur, it's me, Bertie,' I said. "'Did you get my telegram?' There was silence on the other side. I tapped again. "'Arthur!' I called. 
but broke into a brief fit of coughing, which I quelled by pressing the back of my hand against my mouth. I tried the handle. It turned in my hand. I pushed it open, squinting a little into the light beyond the frame. Arthur, are you there? I called. Why aren't you? I was interrupted by the sight of the red uniform of a Coldstream guard and the rifle butt he lifted and unceremoniously struck into my face. It was the sound of screaming that awakened me. I was in dingy stone room, its walls smeared with years of dirt, grey laid on grey laid on grey. I was on a cot that hardly seemed much better. Worse, my hands were secured to it. I strained against the bonds, but they were too tight. There was a high window in the room, again mostly darkened with age and filth, but enough light filtered through it to show me it was daytime. Had I been here overnight? I felt weary, and yet my breathing felt easier. Whatever had been ailing me seemed to have eased. Hello? I called, or croaked, rather, in the manner of someone who has not spoken in some time. Is there anyone there? I heard a noise outside, a moment passed, and the sound of a key turning heavily in the lock. The door opened, and there, standing in the frame of the door, was another Coldstream guard, the bright red of his uniform in stark contrast to the bland dullness of the room. What's going on? I demanded of him, pulling at my restraints to show him how I was tied, as if he didn't already know. He glanced at them, and then at me, before replying, "'You'll be just fine, Gov. They'll be here to get you soon. I'll let them know you're awake.' With that he closed the door. The key turned once more, and I was alone again. I counted as best I could in my head how long it was before the key turned again, and marked it twenty minutes or so. When the door opened, the guard stepped inside to confirm my bonds were still tied, before stepping aside again, to make way for the contingent accompanying him. First, an orderly placed three chairs in front of my bed, before leaving as three men in suits settled themselves across from me. The orderly left, and the guard closed the door and locked it once more. Of the three men, I recognised two of them. Ogilvy, the astronomer, was one. The other was a surprise, the German scientist Loeffler, Frederick Loeffler. I had met him once at a conference, but why he was here was baffling to me. The man in the middle, who began perusing a folder as he sat down, I did not know. Where am I? I demanded. The man in the middle closed the folder on his knee. Newgate, he said. It seemed the safest place, considering. Until such time as we know your situation. My situation? Were you planning on doing away with me as you did with Huxley? Who are you? And you, Ogilvy, Loeffler. What are you doing here? Ogilvy fidgeted and looked at the unannounced man, but remained silent. Loeffler crossed his arms and waited. My name is Archibald Henderson said the man in charge, and I work for the War Office, and you, sir, have been here for a week while we inspected you. Inspected me for what? For your well-being. You appeared to be unwell. How unwell? We had to take precautions over. 
A week, I began. What about the common? Perhaps we should begin with what you remember about what happened at Horsell Common, and why you fled the scene. Run for it, Bertie! Huxley's cry rang again through my head, and again I could almost feel the grip of the artilleryman on my shoulder. And yet, as I remembered it clearly now, and told to these three men, those were the moments of hope against the despair I shuddered to recollect. I had arrived at the common to find a cordon had already blocked off the area around the object. The object, that's what Lord Milton had called it as he pulled up in his bends to examine it more closely, parting the soldiers to allow him access. Huxley had ushered me through with Milton as we moved closer. From our closer vantage point, what we had assumed had been some rock from the sky had been more remarkable still. It was smooth and appeared fashioned as if in some workshop. Huxley was the first to point out that it looked like a cylinder. Man-made? asked Milton, but Huxley spent some time looking carefully at the object, then at the sky, and the crater in which we stood, solemnly, ruefully shaking his head. A team from the Royal Corps of Engineers arrived not long after, and set about trying to get close to the cylinder, despite the heat it radiated. A crowd had formed, and a young member of the corps named Wagstaff had organised a line of locals to pass buckets of water from a nearby pond to throw onto the exterior of the cylinder to cool it down. Huxley bridled at the effort as unnecessary, saying time would do the job well enough, and we retired with Lord Milton for a spot of lunch at his manor house. When we returned, more soldiers still had arrived and the crowd had swollen in size. I shifted uneasily to see young and old men and women lined up at the edge of the crater. "'Is it safe for them to be here?' I muttered to Huxley, but he shrugged, saying, "'We know little and nothing in this matter, Bertie, and when that is so, who is to say when we are out of danger?' And so we hunkered down too, watching alongside those who gathered to see whatever might emerge from this cylinder." Some of the young children, I remember, set to playing in the crater itself before being shooed away by young men in uniform. In the horror that followed, I wanted to believe that might have saved them. It was shortly after time for afternoon tea when the horror began, for all the work of the young engineers little or nothing had occurred when, suddenly, a sound came from inside the cylinder itself. My voice cracked, as I told the three men of what happened next, of the sound of the cylinder unscrewing, of how the lid fell off, and of how we all backed away as we caught the first glimpse of that strange, otherworldly being with its glistening, leathery skin slowly emerging. Transfixed as I was by the creature, it was the details that stuck in my brain. The woman nearby who swooned, the youngsters who scampered away frightened by what they saw, the soldiers tightening their grips on their guns as their officer urged them to stand easy. Stand easy. Milton stirred into life first. I might have a terrible intolerance to the aristocracy, but if nothing else, they're useful for feeling they have to do something. He called to the officer in charge and urged him to send some men forward. The officer complied, and that is when the second terrible thing emerged from the cylinder. 
rising up and taking aim at the advancing men and unleashing the fearful weapon these creatures brought with them. The heat ray, that's what we've called it, said Ogilvy. Deadly to anything it touches. You don't need to tell me, I growled in reply. I saw what it can do. Those men, they were gone in an instant, and then the weapon turned on the crowd. I wouldn't be here myself if Huxley hadn't grabbed me and pushed me away from the pit. We ran. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Henderson interrupted. Yes, he said. That may be a problem. A problem, I repeated, my tone betraying no small amount of anger. What manner of man would not take shelter in the face of these... these... Martians, filled in Ogilvy. I looked at him agog. Martians? Yes, that appears to have been the point of origin of the object. However, we're still trying to verify the information in consultation with other observatories. Henderson shushed him. What happened next? He asked me. You didn't just run. You ran somewhere in particular. Why did you come to London? As we sheltered behind a bank of sand away from the blast of the heat ray, Huxley had quickly told me his plan. People had to know, he told me. There would be more troops along soon, he was sure, and they would bombard this thing, and that would be that. But this was something that belonged in places other than government. He knew my writing. He knew I could get the word out. The captain of the unit, stationed there, overheard, and started to remonstrate with him. But he pushed me away, and told me to make a break for it, to borrow Milton's automobile and go. As the heat ray hissed again, the flames spat up along the edges of the pit. That's when I heard the last words he would say to me. Run for it, Bertie! That's about what we expected, said Henderson. You realise, of course, we can't possibly let that happen. I glared at him. How are you going to stop me? He looked at me as I laid in the bed in the tiny cell and raised an eyebrow. It would appear from where I'm sitting we already have. I pulled hard at the restraints again. Is that it? Are you going to keep me locked up here forever? People will soon see the truth regardless when, when whatever is in that pit finds a way to move. Ah, he tutted, there we have an advantage. That is never going to happen. The creatures are quite dead. Dead? I paused, recalling what Huxley had said to me in that urgent whispered conversation. You brought up more troops. Deployed the rest of the artillery, shelled that thing until it was no more, right? Henderson shook his head. Not at all. That would have been a terrible waste. Imagine all that technology. It was far too valuable a target to destroy, goodness no. Fortunately, something entirely different came to our aid. Loeffler? Care to fill him in? I'm sure I would only stumble over the notes myself. The German, who had remained silent this far, uncrossed his arms. My apologies, old colleague, that we meet again this way, he began, his English heavily accented. I believe it was at the Crystal Palace we last met at a biology conference. I inclined my head, though this was hardly the situation for pleasantries. We were lucky, old colleague, said the scientist, or perhaps it was inevitable. Whichever it is, it was not ours who defeated these creatures, these Martians. He said the word hesitantly, as if he scarcely believed it himself still. No, not us, he continued. 
rather the tiniest of allies, bacteria. Wherever these creatures came from, they could fight our mightiest army. They could stand against our strongest weapons, but they could not fight the merest bacteria. It attacked them the moment they opened the hatch. It worked into their bodies. It killed them from the inside out. They had no immunity as we do to such bacteria. We are born and grow up getting used to it. Every day we get filthy. We get exposed to it. We adapt. We thrive. They, wherever they are from, have never had that opportunity. It hits them hard. And that, my friend, is the one area where we were lucky. Not just that, harumped Henderson. But already we have scientists starting to examine their weaponry, the exterior of their craft. Already we have a fellow from the Albury Wagon and Carriage Company speculating on what could be done with that armour, or one of these automobile contraptions. I growled at him. War. These creatures hopelessly outclassed us, and we survived because of luck, because of Mother Nature, and your first thoughts turned to war. Well, my dear sir, replied Henderson, one never knows the chances of more of these creatures coming, this time prepared for whatever it was that killed them. Um, said Ogilvy, I would say the chances are around a million. No one wants to hear your odds, interrupted Henderson. The point is, Britain has survived, and it might as well bally well use what it has gained to strengthen the empire. Goodness knows there are threats both external and internal, and we need to be strong. Strong? I spat. Is that what you call it? Locking me away in Newgate Prison to shut me up and killing off Huxley? Is that what you call strong? A flush crept into Henderson's cheeks, and a silence fell in the room. He glanced down, opening the folder on his lap again. At length he spoke. You are to be released, and you will be allowed to publish your story. You can take it to Pearson's magazine as you planned, and yes, you can publish... But know this, the War Office will monitor your efforts and intervene as necessary. You can tell your story, but you can only tell it as fiction. If word were to get out that this was real, there exist somewhere beings with a technology greater than the British Empire's. Well, if people were to believe such a thing were true, it would prompt widespread panic, sir, I assure you. So yes, you may publish, yes, you may put your name to it, and yes, you might even become acclaimed for what you have written. People may come to know the name Herbert George Wells for his daring works of speculation. But, sir, let one word of this come to be known as true, and the War Office will intervene, and you would not like our intervention. I bowed my head, biting my tongue as I listened to this screed. The restraints bit at my arm as I strained, as I longed to stand up and strike him, government office be damned. And Huxley? I snarled finally. What of him? What did he do wrong that made you lie about how he died? Henderson adjusted his tie. We didn't lie, he said calmly. We told the truth. Well, mostly. We changed the location of where he died for purposes of national security. He died of a heart attack brought on by... He gestured towards Luffler. What was it, you said? Luffler folded his arms, a grim look on his face. Old colleague, I said there was one area we got lucky. 
but I didn't finish telling the whole story, he said. I looked at him, unsure now as he spoke. With all that had gone wrong, what could be worse? You may be wondering why we kept you here so long before coming to you. A week we kept you. We had to be sure. Sure, I asked. Sure of what, man? We were lucky in the bacteria that killed the Martians. But where we are not so lucky is that they brought bacteria of their own. As ours killed them, so theirs began to affect those at the site and those they touched as they moved away from the scene. The bacteria was not so virulent, it seemed, as the type that wrought such damage to our visitors. But it was enough to do serious harm. Huxley was an old man. He was one of the first to be affected by it. It acted as a kind of influenza. With his age, it brought on a heart attack. Exactly as it said in the newspaper, I thought. So they didn't lie. They just didn't tell the entire truth. And this bacteria... I asked, how is it affecting others? Badly, said Loeffler. So I was exposed to it, especially the infirm. The results have not been good. It has only been a week, but of those exposed, perhaps five to ten in one hundred has been in danger of death. Five to ten, I gasped. If not contained, that would be... And I stopped, as I thought of my journey from the site, of my cough, and my ache, and all the people I had met. I looked Luffler in the eyes. Was I? Did I? He nodded grimly. We are trying to contain it as best as possible, but, but there's only so much we can do. This Martian flu is out there. We hope it will perish by itself, not find a way to strengthen. Or perhaps our bodies will build up defences over time, but yes, it exists, and we must see how it resolves. Henderson broke in again. Of course, Mr. Wells, your story will not need to reflect that, and any mention of a Martian flu will be scrubbed by our censors. For the record, not that this is one for this meeting, but we shall also never refer to this bacteria, this disease by this name ever again. The War Office has assigned another name entirely to it, and we sincerely hope that this is the last we ever hear of it. I paused, letting it sink in that I had unwittingly carried these germs out into the world. I thought back to the artilleryman, the people on the train, the curate, the landlord and his helper, the people on the omnibus, the cab driver, even the Coldstream guard who struck me down. At length I found words words to ask one more thing. What is it? I asked. Henderson looked at me with annoyance. What is what, Mr. Wells? What is the name? I said, fixing him with a stare. What are you calling the way this disease affects people? How will I know if I hear of it starting to have a wider effect? He stood up, brushed himself down, the two men at his flanks rising also, and called for the guard to open the door. "'I promise you, you will hear of no such thing, Mr. Wells,' he said as the door clanked open, "'and you will be released in the next few days when you have been given the all-clear. "'But the name is really just a simple substitution. "'Take out one point of origin, 
switch in another. Rather clever, really. Keep the same effect, but strip out the fear of the unknown. Henceforth, it will simply be known by two words. The other shuffled out ahead of him, and he turned to smile his thin smile back at me before he left the room, for me to never see again. It's Spanish flu. And thanks very much, Stephen, uh, a.k.a. Leo McBride, for lending his story to today's podcast. I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. A wonderful bit of alternate history. Oh, well, hmm. actually, there was a little bit of a debate about what genre it fits into, whether, in fact, it's technically secret history, because the events depicted in it could have happened in our universe. We just never found out about them. But I think that's a very fine hair to split. Uh, it's certainly good enough for me. Um, Leo McBride, Stephen, is a brilliant writer. I will leave a link to his anthology quartet uh, in the description for this uh, podcast. Please do go and have a have a read. Uh, it's a really good uh, little anthology of four short stories. Uh, I will be back next month, hopefully with one of my stories, uh, but if not, I have a couple of authors I might tap up uh, to find other works to read, but hopefully I can get something written uh, for you guys for next time. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening, and I will catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.